to sit back and you're like, nope. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Mixed Motherhood Podcast. It's Cookie and Danai. And today we have some awesome guests, my friend Fringina and Angelina. And we have some great conversations to hopefully engage you all. So, hello, hi, Fringina, and hi, Angelina. Hello. Great to be here with you. So, ladies, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Angelina, tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, I am currently working in HR recruitment. Um, previously, that I was working in the social services field, um, but decided it was a change just for the sake of my children and the nature of the work that we were doing um, where I was employed. Uh, I have two kids. Uh, one's a three-year-old little girl, and then a twenty-three month or thirty-two-month-old um, boy. They are busy and keeping me active. I'm actually surprised that they're quiet right now. But um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. What is your children's heritage? I'm Ugandan, um, but born in Kenya, Kenya. So I identify as Kenyan, Ugandan, Canadian, I guess, because I've been in Canada for a, a majority of my life. Um, so the kids, I would say, are Ugandan uh, and IT. Uh, my husband is Métis, Ukrainian background. I didn't know that. That is that is pretty cool. What about you, Frangina? Um, Angelina and I are actually sisters. I'm her older sister. We moved to Canada when I was five, so she was about three. And I've been in the Peace Regime for about 20 years on and off again. I met my partner here in the Peace Region 15 years ago, and he's from New Brunswick. He's Caucasian. Shout um, out New actually, Brunswick! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And we actually lived in New Brunswick for a short period of time where I got my first undergrad. And then we moved back to the Peace Region where we had our first child while I was doing my second undergrad. And then we have a, we had our second child, a boy. So I have a, a seven-year-old girl and a five-year-old boy. And I'm currently working in the helping profession. That's awesome. You say you were born in Uganda, but you lived in Kenya for a little bit? I was, born, was Uganda. born in uh, Uganda, but, but uh, me and my sister that follows me were both born in Kenya. We were there for a period of time before we moved to to Canada. Do you remember what that was like? No, I was I was, I was far too young to remember um, that at three. I don't believe a lot of my core memories were built yet. Mm-hmm. So, um, yep. Canada has been primarily all of I can remember. And yeah. where in Canada did you grow up? Um, for like the first a majority of our, our childhood, I'd say London, Ontario. I still consider that to be my hometown because that's where we first kind of kind of settled. Um, mm-hmm. We did live in BC for a period of time and then eventually moved to the, the Peace region when my father um, had a job opportunity there. I don't quite call Grand Prairie uh, like my hometown, <laughs> even though it's about... 50-50 compared to the other places we um, stayed, but um, that's the case. <laughs> I mean, it's home to you, Frangina, now. Yeah, it is. Um, we've we've settled here, and it is a nice place to raise children, um, small, but are close enough to bigger cities. And w- would you say that it is diverse? I would. I would say when we first got here, it was pretty sparse. We didn't see a lot of diversity, but slowly over the years with foreign student programs and um, foreign worker programs, it's slowly become more diverse, 
but I do find that it's sort of siloed. So everybody kind of sticks to their communities. Yeah, I find that too. Like I've lived across, I've lived in Newfoundland, New Brunswick, Ontario, and BC. And I agree. I think that there are a lot of places in Canada that are pretty siloed and just hard to, to break into a friend group. And I think that can be tough, especially as a mother and trying to find, you know, people with similar experiences to you um, and similar experiences to your children. So both of you, do you think that you have found a good support system? Like, what does that look like for you? For me, I think I have a pretty good support system because my mom and one of my sisters is still here. I think that in this community, my daughter's pretty fortunate because there is a lot of um, what I prefer to use is bicultural children. Um, so children that look like her who come from a household where there is somebody of African descent and a Caucasian. So I think she's pretty fortunate because I didn't really have that up until about grade 11. I think it was me and oh, wow. two other girls in my school. So tell us more about that. What was it like to grow up in Canada as two African girls? Um, London was okay because I... we had our community there. Um, it was, yeah. I remember we went to gatherings, parties, African parties. We had a pretty good community. It wasn't until we came to Grand Prairie where it was very obvious. We like I was the only black girl in the entire school. So it was it was the change. So I'd have to agree with Ringina about the like almost like a cultural shift where um in London you kinda just kinda blended into the the surroundings of the people who were there. There's so many different cultures, whereas Grand Prairie, it was quite apparent until I think of the sixth grade when another friend of mine, who I'm still friends with to this day, uh, moved. And we kind of sort of latched on to each other because we were the only two <laughs> Black um, girls in the, in the school. Besides my sisters, when we eventually went to the same uh, high school and stuff, there was, there was not other um, children of color. Mm -hmm. I, I remember when I first moved up to GP, and when I first met Frangina, it was kind of like that for me. It was like, oh, so there are other people of different ethnicities. It wasn't because it was, you know, it's not very clear. And this you're actually out and about and actually interacting with people, you won't see them very often. And from what I understand, like, and I think you're right, Frangina, definitely the silo thing. If you don't go out looking for it, you won't see them. Every I wonder where they are. Like, where's everybody hiding? I don't know. Like, where do they go? What do they do? Right. Um, See, I've noticed something about Africans. They like a lot of Africans that I have come across are very secretive about where they come from until they know that you yourself are an African, and then they mm -hmm. open up to you. Mm -hmm. And I have a theory about this. I think that because there is so few Black people in Canada, I think uh, Black Canadians make up about three and a half percent of the entire population. So very small. I think that because there are so few Black people, it's very easy for non-Black people to assume where you're from. And having spoken to my African friends and my Caribbean friends and my Black Canadian friends, it's a touchy subject when somebody misidentifies where you're from. So you wouldn't tell an African that they're from the Caribbean and you wouldn't tell a Caribbean person that they're from, from Africa. And I think there is a hesitation to be open about that until people get to know you. And it's not a bad thing. I think that, again, racial stereotypes and 
other things like that that are associated with people from their regions have really forced people to be a little bit more hesitant about sharing. Where where they're I, would, from. I would agree with that. I think for, for me, and I'll speak for me, mm-hmm. um, my experience has been a little bit different because I am a dark-skinned woman, but mm-hmm. I speak and sound like I'm white. And I don't speak my language. So I also experience within the African community a little bit of othering. And Mm -hmm. I find that Mm -hmm. it's very much from what country you're from. So even though we're African, I also find that we're sort of divided by what country you're from. And I think that in itself- Yeah, we went through that at university. mm -hmm. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that in itself um, is challenging to navigate because you just for me I've always had that experience of just never fitting in it's like okay you're African but you don't have an accent how come that's immediately the first thing actually that just happened to me this afternoon um I met a lady from South Africa and she was like oh and I said I'm from Zimbabwe and she's like oh we're neighbors but you don't sound anything like you're from Africa and I just kind of said well I don't know right but she was like no you don't sound anything like you're from Africa And and then I was just like well I mean I don't know what I'm supposed to sound like but this is what I sound like. See, I've been told that uh, my accent is all over the place. And it is now that I've been in Canada for a long time. But I think it's just a product of being, you know, in different environments. I mean, we went to university in a place that has a distinct accent, right? In Newfoundland. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think that there are parts of that that come out sometimes. Um, and mm-hmm. then there's the distinctive maritimer accent apparently that I think I've picked up as well and then there's like the the west coast bc like super long drawn out accent as well so I don't hear it but you know my family is like why do you sound so strange like you sound like you are several different people smushed together (laughs) at once I want to ask you ladies did you ever did you ever get comments like that? Like, I, I know, Frangina, you just said that people have told you that you sound white and that maybe caused some alienation or... I've been told that um, I sound white from both Black people and white people. I've been told I'm pretty for a Black girl, for a dark-skinned Black girl. I hear that a lot as well. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's just part of the experience of growing up in a community where you are visibly different and a minority. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. And I think that contributes to the negative perception that Black women who are in interracial relationships have because people automatically assume that you are more white identifying or you know, non-Black identifying because you sound white, essentially. Dating has always been interesting because I find being that I sound white um, and there wasn't a lot of options in this area, I tended to date a lot of white guys. Okay. (laughs) What is dating like in the prairies? I want to hear all about this. As a black, dark-skinned black woman, I want to hear what dating is like in the prairies. You are definitely fetishized and stereotyped. I was going to say that same thing. Yes. Really? Yeah. Like, what have people said? I think agree with that. Like, I, you're cool to hang out with, but I wouldn't date you. <laughs> or you get that, yeah, that you get that comment where you're like, uh, I wouldn't normally date somebody like you, but because 
you're pretty, essentially for a black girl, yeah, mm-hmm. okay, I'll date mm-hmm. you. Or wow. then it's, um, oh, you you know what? You don't actually, um, they don't say behave. That's not the word. But you don't act, you act differently to other yeah. black people. And it's like, well, how many have you met? That is how a giant red flag. That is right? a giant red flag because that tells you that their perception of a black woman is something that is stereotyped and just over the top. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Growing up here as a teenager, you're an adolescent. There's been times where kind of falling into the stereotype has been something that I've done um, to try to appease. And I've grown out of that, definitely. But I do see that, too, in, in other young kids who are of visible minorities kind of playing up those stereotypes to fit in. Like, what are some of the things you did? you know, danced a certain way, um, spoke a certain way, presented in a different way that wasn't authentic to who I was and allowed certain things to pass by, which I no longer allow anymore in my presence. I have a question. So just kind of shifting the conversation a little bit into the children kind of aspect of things. How do you Mm -hmm. feel that our girls are going to be perceived do you think it's getting easier or do you think they're going to also face the same kind of thing just on a maybe on a lesser scale yeah i I think that they're going to be facing it in a different way because they are bicultural Mm -hmm. and because they have both the caucasian and sort of african side there's fetishization in a different way for them and i think because i have a daughter and a son i'm noticing that they're going to have different experiences with that. For my daughter, something that's kind of stood out to me is she sees a lot of herself reflected in Black women. And yeah. I can see for my son, it's a little bit different for him because he's surrounded by, his reference is white men, his dad and, and the people um, in our community. So she watches shows and sees herself and can see herself in these Black characters and he doesn't. So he's definitely going to have a much different struggle in, in coming to terms with what he sees himself as and what other people see him as. For him, do you think it's because his dad is white so I that he's identifying see. with males in general? That's the male that he sees? I do. That's something actually one of my sisters pointed out because I was speaking to her about something he had said. And uh, she was like, well, it's different because your daughter is surrounded by all of us. We're all black women. She, yeah. Everything yeah. I watch is basically black women. <laughs> and then for him, he has his dad and he has the you know boys in his class and he's got the other males that he sees around here who are the majority white. So mm-hmm. his, what he's re- what's being reflected for him is much different than for her. And I have mm-hmm. to constantly kind of check my ego and recognize that my experience is going to be different than their experience and even their experiences are going to be each other. I think that a lot of the um, negative experiences that like, I'll give the example of, of my, my daughter will face are very relatable as a black woman. So issues with hair issues with not being viewed as being the standard of beauty, that sort of thing. And I'm already kind of seeing it just based on, you know, who her friends are in her, in her classroom and the things that she prioritizes 
herself. She's six years old, but she's very conscious about her clothing and she doesn't like looking like a boy. And she embraces a lot of things that are hyper feminine because she feels like she needs, um, she needs these extra things to affirm who she is as a person, even though, you know, obviously I think she's beautiful and, you know, she could wear or do whatever she wants and not, not be perceived any differently by me. But I, I think you're right. I think that the experience is different for girls than it is for boys because it will be way easier for them to adjust in our society. Our society is male dominated. There's a huge attraction to, um, there's a huge attraction to what black men represent, like power, strength, you know, that sort of thing. And I think that helped a lot of black men to be able to navigate some of those things in society. It does a little bit concern me given all of the, attention on the experience of black men and Mm -hmm. systemized or you know the legal system and it does concern me in that I do think it would be responsible of me as a parent to make him aware that this is what and how the world will see you and treat you but it is okay for you to see and identify in the way that you want to Mm -hmm. and both can be true at the same time um for me personally i think my my daughter because she does she does have me as a role model and my sisters even though they are far we've moved to like the elk valley where primarily most of the population is white and over the age of 50 there are a few kids in their daycare one other boy who's of jamaican and caucasian descent um that my son has least the ability to identify with but if that boy wasn't with him necessarily the only person he would have to as a role model and to model himself again with against would be his father like going back into like thing seeing yourself in tv shows there's a lot more tv shows now than when we were younger with with kids and children that look like us or my daughter um i just want my son to have the tools and knowledge that he needs to be able to navigate in in a world that is going to see him in a certain way because he is he is um i do identify him as a black a black male because that's what he he will present to as a role and i have Mm -hmm. and i have to have him prepared knowing that there are going to people be people who automatically judge him um by the way he dresses um yeah the way he speaks the, the way he holds himself. If he has confidence, they might consider that cocky or arrogant or like um, he's just uh, misinterpreting who he is as an individual. And it's sad that I, I'm going to have to have those conversations with him, um, knowing that he's growing up in such a small mountain community, knowing that there's mm-hmm. not that many other people that look like him outside of our household or his one friend. Have you ladies had any conversations with your children about race yet? Have you have you yes. had to navigate those things? I had a feeling it was yes. yes. <laughs> surprisingly. From day one. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about that. Have there been any incidents that have 
kind of kick-started the conversation or is this just something that's naturally a part of your everyday? We, I started from day one reading books, just, um, and then mm-hmm. just talking to them and asking them, you know, being curious about how they're seeing the world, how they're seeing us. Obviously, me being a dark-skinned woman, their dad being Caucasian, it's pretty obvious. Taking my daughter to school, some of the things that her friends are asking her, and I think it is just about being curious about how they're making sense out of all of that, and I mean, again, like I've said, I've had to kind of check my ego and recognize that, you know, in the past, things that have offended me coming from white children, I'm hearing in my children, and that has been shocking, but also a learning curve for me in recognizing that it's it's not black and white. It's There's a lot of gray in it, and it's about giving grace and being curious and and checking my ego so I can be there for them to help them find their own identity and also be safe enough in this world and understanding that people will see them in a different way. You're right, Frangina, in saying you have to check yourself sometimes because we might get offended by some things. But um, when you think about a child asking, when it's a child asking another child some questions, sometimes it's genuinely coming from a perspective of, I don't know, like I, they don't see that on a daily basis. They don't live with that. So they are just asking the question. Um, I know when my oldest was younger, I shared a lot of kids would ask her about her hair, how come it's so thick and touch it and stuff. And sometimes the teacher would step in and the teacher would tell me I had to step in today because they just were kind of almost treating her like a not a zoo animal that doesn't sound great but very inquisitive about her and she could she was showing uncomfortability with the situation well she's hyper visible Um, yeah Mm -hmm. yes um and it was it was it was a tough conversation to have with her because she mentioned like everybody touches my hair so eventually I had to say okay I told the teacher like it's in her space she doesn't want to be touched and um my oldest has always been that person who wants her space so if they can respect that and in the end, she was able to then speak up for herself to say like, no, don't touch my hair. I don't want you to touch my hair. If you have a question, you can ask me, but don't touch my hair. And after a little while, I found she was navigating navigating that herself. I haven't had the conversation with my other two just because I don't know if they're, well, my little one's only four, so she's not really sure what's going on in the world anyway. But my middle is kind of getting to that stage where she's starting to realize she's a different, but, um, and then I find they also gravitate to people who look like them. So then they don't get as many questions. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. For us, cause we're in a mountain town. Like I never noticed this with um, my daughter until we moved out here at daycare and even out and about people have been curious and touching her hair and asking her, you know, questions uh, about like her texture and things like that. She's, she's only three years old so of course she's going to come back to me and be like mommy why is my hair different from daddy's why am I a different shade from you if you're black and daddy's white what am I like she's asking mm-hmm. these questions and I always tell her Delilah you're a mix of both mm-hmm. of us you know you are going to stand out from all your other friends your hair's your hair is not going to look like Elsa um, she's had another girl comment on how she could not be Elsa when she played a game because her hair is not straight or blonde 
Um, and of course, she's internalized that, wondering what's wrong with her hair. So it's it's become kind of a thing in our household to have a mantra before we leave the house of saying I'm worthy, like I am beautiful, I love my skin, I love my hair, I love who I am, and mm-hmm. because me, I am special. And I think it's important for us on the home base to re to instill um, that self love into our kids because. And essentially, they're going to be navigating and not, she's not probably even coming back home and telling me half the things that happened to her on a, on a day-to-day basis at daycare or in her interactions when she's out and about with her father um, because she can't verbalize those yet. So yeah. I do have to, like Regina said, check my ego and breathe and kind of explain to her why certain people might view or look at her certainly or why her skin is, is different than other people or how others perceive that. I started having, um, the, I remember the first time I talked to my daughter about race, she was three years old and she was really upset. She came home from daycare, really upset. I asked her what was wrong. And she said that her friend had told her that she didn't want any brown people at her birthday party. So automatically in my head, I'm like raging. But I think at that time, her her being upset was more so about not being invited to the party rather than the issue about race. But I think for me as a, as a parent, I'm asking myself questions like, why is another child at this age, at age three, why are they making that differentiation between skin color and having that as something that is negative at three years old? And it just shows me that people can be conditioned from a really early age to mm-hmm. develop this bias and this prejudice towards other people. And, you know, I remember talking to my husband about it and saying that it is unfair that I am having to take my child's innocence away by explaining what racism is and talking to her about loving the way that she looks and loving her skin color and loving her heritage when this other uh, child's parents don't have to have that conversation with her until she's much older. There's a lot of anger sometimes as a parent of mixed children or just even children of color about not having enough time just not having enough time to savor that innocence and having to like get a reality check every day. It's like the, another time we were in a grocery store and we were packing groceries and random couple came and touched her hair and said, Oh wow, you have beautiful curly hair. And that was so violating. And I keep thinking to myself, if me as a dark skinned black woman, went up to a stranger's child and touched their hair and, you know, said, wow, what beautiful straight hair you have. <laughs> it would it would be a, an international incident, I think. Yeah. Just the violation of it, the strangeness of it. Some, I don't think it's fair sometimes that we have to go through these things. And I don't know if either of you have felt that at all. I've definitely felt that. I have. You I know, feel it's like, funny. Yeah. You mentioned the conditioning and with the hair, and that's something we've experienced and navigated. But there's been also moments of awareness for me of sort of being 
cognizant of not passing down my own trauma through how I maybe look at different experiences for her, Mm -hmm. specifically with the hair. We've had situations where, you know, I'm thinking, you know, they shouldn't be touching your hair. And she's like, I like it. It's fine. They're my friends. Why, Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't they touch my hair? And then other times where it does bother her. So it's giving her permission to make the decision that she wants. If you don't want them to touch your hair, let them know. And if you're okay with it, then I'm okay with it. But that was sort of an aha moment for me, thinking that I needed to go and address this. And her totally just being like, whoa, (laughs) like it's fine. (laughs) I actually told them that they can. I gave them permission. I'm like, okay. That is an, an extremely valid point, Frangina, like not passing down our own trauma because our experiences are going to be very different to theirs because mm-hmm. their world is also very different to what we experienced. And so we do have to be very, very, very careful with how we, because we could be also passing down that kind of um, energy down t- with them instead of just letting them navigate it and deal with it as they as they grow in their environment. Because our environment and theirs two different cadences. Well, yeah, with, in our situation, um, I'm the fire (laughs) and my husband is kind of like the earth, right? Very calm, very level-headed. And I think in situations like that, he recognizes when he needs to step in and give me a reality check and ask me why I have such a strong feeling about it because he wants to understand as well, but also he wants to make me think about it too and I I think you're you're totally right like we do tend to pass on you know unintentionally our own traumas and I find that I never really experienced these feelings until I moved to this country like in Zimbabwe yeah we experienced some racism right but because you're living in a country where black people are the majority and there is safety in being surrounded by your relatives, your family, your friends, and you're all kind of going through these moments together. It's not the same as having to navigate them on your own where you don't have that level of safety. It's interesting that you mention um, that being able to navigate it with other with other friends and family, um, that we've had that experience. That's definitely something that our children being mixed um, of race uh, are not going to have the chance to experience unless they're in an environment where there's other mixed race children mm-hmm. that are like them. Um, very mm-hmm. seldom are they going to come across other children that look like them. So they are navigating the world in a sense and through a viewpoint that we will never fully understand. Yes. Um, we can lend our, our experiences and our um, wisdom to them. Um, and then hope that they decide to navigate and make the right choices or um, pave a path for themselves that they can use as building blocks to help them succeed in, in, a, in, 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 a, in an essence in a society that not, is not really going to wholly understand them. Because if you were to look at, what did you say, the percentage of um, Black or African? I think it's three and a half percent. Three um, percent or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the smallest that you can you can think of, and then just think of our children being even at a smaller margin of that. They are are going to have a set of challenges that we cannot speak to fully. I have a question now for all of us as a collective. <laughs> Do you ever feel okay? I don't want to say regret because that's a very heavy word, 
but do you ever feel like you should have stopped and maybe thought ahead of, okay, what kind of situation am I putting my children in by being with a Caucasian man? No. No. (laughs) I've I've thought of it in moments where we've had differing opinions on certain things that are based in our values that Mm -hmm. are reflective of our different backgrounds. Something that I've been sort of reconciling with and moving away from is even the term mixed race and biracial. We had a discussion about that, the idea of mixed race and there being two races. And that's even something I recognize I've sort of taken on that's reinforcing and perpetuating things that aren't in alignment with how I look at the world. So that's Mm -hmm. something I'm sort of Mm -hmm. being mindful of and moving towards referring to my children as bicultural because I recognize again that I have a position here of influencing them and I want to be mindful of what I expose them to you know I mean even Mm -hmm. the things I watch I'm starting to become more mindful of because we've had those discussions of you know slave movies and things like that that you watch and what that does to you and I noticed that I mean, I want to expose my children to different cultures and black culture and all that. But I also want to be mindful of what I sort of pass down to them and what I expose them to. Because they are truly two cultures going on there. And so for you to lean on one culture more so than the other, like, what are you saying to your child? Is this one more important than the other? Do we need to put one on a pedestal and one beneath it? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, in whichever way you're going, right? Mm Mm-hmm would have had until we had children and recognized wow there are so much difference between us that we weren't even aware of until we were forced to have to have those conversations Mm -hmm. see I would argue the opposite in my my situation I think that first of all I never contrary to popular belief people I didn't go out looking for a white guy Okay. It was just supposed to be a quick thing. I was going to move on, just have a little taste and go back. But I'm very happy that I took a chance on this man because I feel like having children really affirmed my decision to be with this person. And I think that I'm lucky enough to have a partner who is very self-aware. So very self-aware of his positionality in society and very self-aware of, you know, the issues that I face in society. And I think that because of that openness and because he is quote unquote woke, I know people hate that term. I'm able to be more open and honest with him about calling him out and, you know, getting him to learn things from my perspective. And yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't regret Like, I don't ever think, oh, man, what have I put my children into, right? Because in some ways, I want to believe that things are way way better now and will be when our children are older. I want to believe that, you know, I'm instilling um, self-confidence, self-awareness in my children so that they can build that self-esteem to be able to navigate these things. And so back to your original question, Cookie. Um, I, I don't think that I've ever had that feeling like, ah, you know, sometimes I wish like we were just both the same race and it would be easier because parenting is hard 
regardless of race. You know, race is just like that extra level of of complicatedness that adds to the day-to-day. For me, I think um, because my husband is Métis um, with mm-hmm. his Ukrainian-Irish um, mix, um, he, along with m- myself, has have also experienced points in times where within our own communities, um, him, his Métis community and my African community, where I've felt like I have not been African enough and he's also felt like he has not been Métis enough because he is white passing. And because mm-hmm. of that sense othering that we've both experienced, we are going to be able to lend unique experiences and points of views and perspectives to our children and also to between our ourselves inter-conversationally. We are going to be able to, we are able, and we have been doing a lot more of this, uh, ability to dig deep or and mm-hmm. see what it is um, that we've experienced on individual levels that has made us nav- navigating the world difficult for us and what tools and um, things we have used and what we together and separately can do to um, help our children. I think I have, I do not regret choosing the partner I have because although he is um, like white passing and of a dis- different culture, there is a lot of similarities in our core values that yeah. I believe are what is going to allow us to help our children navigate this world uh, a lot more easily. Use the word oh. regret. I really don't feel like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel bad for saying that because I don't think you, know, you said. No, I don't. I really think I know what you mean, that, Cookie. Kind of question or maybe. Yeah, question like the mm-hmm. the how things have happened. Yeah, I. You I, know, I, as you were talking, yeah. it kind of reminded me of. I don't know if you guys saw Sunday Newton's speech to her mom, which was so powerful. No. She's mixed race, mm. as as she sort of identifies, but bicultural. So she's Zimbab- half Zimbabwean, and. Um, mm-hmm. Her mom's dark skinned and she um, gave a speech that was so powerful, sort of apologizing for the privilege of having lighter skin, knowing Mm -hmm. that she's had a privilege in that within her career as an actress and apologizing to dark skinned women and her mom for the experiences that they've had. And I think that was so powerful to me. Mm Self-awareness. Well, something similar happened mm -hmm. too with... um... Zoe Saldana, who played, she was cast to play um, Nina Simone, who is a very well-known dark-skinned singer. And at the time, she kind of argued that, you know, as an actor, she should be able to portray any character in society. Um, And she got a lot of backlash from, you know, other people, especially dark-skinned Black women who potentially could have been cast in that role and she had no self-awareness. So I think what you're talking about with, with Tante Newton is interesting because she has the self-awareness enough. And that's what we need to teach our children is that yes, you will experience at times racism, prejudice, discrimin- uh, prejudice or discrimination. But within that, there are also layers to it. And these are the privileges that you may receive because of the way you look. And this is what you need to do with that. There was a split on opinions about that. A lot of people agreed with you, but some saw that as sort of what we were talking about. Was her mom 
passing down her trauma onto her and putting that burden onto her that she felt that she couldn't even celebrate herself without having to sort of honor her mom Mm -hmm. in highlighting and making it visible how aware she was of that. And that's something that's sort of taken into consideration about how and what I expose my kids to. There's definitely two sides to it, for sure. And I can see... I don't see think it's necessarily... It being... Yeah, I believe that's multifaceted. Um, because she is likely to have witnessed her mom be put in situations yeah. where her race was a predominant reason why she was othered. Or um, why she... Or why her, her race or her... her um, her gender may have affected her ability to get certain jobs or positions. So it's not necessarily that her mother may have passed on that trauma. It's her living and and seeing the effects um, that race has had on women Mm -hmm. of color who are darker black women, general dark skinned black women and her recognizing that she does have privilege because she does not necessarily fit into that. So she may have seen her mother be put in situations where she would not, uh, where she's had to navigate the world differently as a a dark-skinned woman that has allowed Gabby or um, uh, um, in essence to see the the unfair fairness is absurd. Mm -hmm. My question for everybody is how much of that do you allow your children to see? What's, what's the line there? When does it? That is a great that? question, and that is something that my husband and I disagree on. One of the few things we disagree on. He kind of grew up never witnessing conflict in his family, um, and I have noticed that in our relationship, when we have had natural conflicts, like you know, when you're dating something pisses you off about your partner and you end up in an argument. And, you know, me and my culture, I grew up in an environment where people were having discussions and yelling and and making up all the time. And so I learned from a very young age to understand that conflicts can be healthy. Conflicts can be natural as long as you, you know, progress from conflict and to, to come to a, um, you know, an agreement or resolve it. Yeah. And I've noticed with him that he is very hesitant about exposing our children to that kind of thing. Whereas I am more open to the idea that, you know, there are some things in life that you have to be exposed to as long as it's obviously appropriate um, for the age. But you have to help your child navigate th- through those things, right? It's not just about hiding the world or hiding the truth from them, but it's, you know, helping them to understand that, you know, sometimes people can be mean and it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with them. And this is how you navigate through that. And I've talked to other other couples too and this seems to be a um, an interesting dynamic between them and I don't know if it's the same for any of you guys how much of the struggle do you expose yourself your children to as far as your experience as a dark-skinned black woman also 
media. I mean, Black Lives Matter, there was a lot of exposure there. I definitely yeah. took my kids to the march yeah. and, you know, they've seen things from um, media and things like that. And I think that How was- How old what, are your kids? Um, my son is five and my daughter is seven. So what they've seen okay. is, is not any of the videos or anything like that, but more sort of appropriate to their age. But that's, I mean, even just going to the march and, and chanting Black Lives Matter, we had to have a conversation mm-hmm. with my son about why that was a statement that had to be said. And just sort of navigating that, how much of that do you sort of expose them to and where that boundary is based on their age and how much of that then becomes part of their subconscious and their worldview. This one's really, really tough for me because in as much as I want them to know all these things and to know the struggles, um, Okay, first of all, I don't even know why I want to cry right now, but it's really random. But I just, I feel like it's a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a lot for, for them to take in and for me to try and explain that and for me to um, try and bring them into that world without um, killing their spirit. Yeah, and making them very like, okay, so that person did that and, and now I've got to not like them because, you know, I don't want to confuse them and I don't want Mm -hmm. them to have a negative view of the world uh, based on how I'm feeling or based on how I experience some things so I want them not to be ignorant I don't want them to be ignorant I want them to come to me with questions for me to answer I don't necessarily want to just unload on them that oh this is what's going to happen and this is what happens and this is what's going on right now that's engage 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 because sometimes that can be very overwhelming and then you end up being complete i want i'm trying to find the word i think it's natural for you to feel that way like every every parent wants to protect their child from evil right uh for those of you who can't see i'm doing air quotes evil um (laughs) and it's not like it's not like you want to shelter them there's a difference between sheltering a child and wanting to protect them. And, you know, I think as Frangina has said that you have to kind of look at it from, you have to meet your children where they are. So if you have a very self-aware child who is seeing, you know, people marching in the streets and uh, holding pitchforks and fire and asking like, what's, what's happening, then you need to be able to meet them at their uh, sorry, at their age and their maturity and tell them what what it is they're asking. I don't think you necessarily have to make it a point to drive to every protest, especially if their curiosity is not there yet. I think, the, I think that we sometimes underestimate how observant and how um, intuitive children are because I think they sense it. I think they see it. And I think that, you know, they soak up a lot more than we are aware of, but I think it yeah. is important to be able to answer questions and teach them things that are appropriate for their age and continue to reinforce those things. For, for me, yes, um, I think it's all dependent on age and the situations. Um, 
where mm-hmm. these issues may arise. If my child is with me when something um, like of a, a significant, um, uh, I don't know, like a racial mm-hmm. inequity occurs, um, then of course we're going to talk about it in a way that she can understand. I don't want her to be yeah. bombarded mm-hmm. or overwhelmed with um, the information. And the more she comes to me, the the I will always have that opportunity where we'll have a talk. But if I don't know the answers, so like that is something that I can always just, as she grows, mention that it would be something that we could read into or do research on um, together. I don't want her to feel like everything in in this world specifically is tethered to her race or her identity yes. as a but I do want her to understand that there are nuances yes. and situations where she is going to have to, I guess, deal with with, mm-hmm. with those things. Um, do you, does it make you okay? Because just having this conversation right now, just right now, it makes me fe- almost feel like a bad black person for not exposing them to that stuff. I have to step back and go. But who are no. you as a person outside of being a black person? Who are you as a person? And what do you want to instill in Cookie, your children? And can I just say, as somebody who knows you, and as somebody who has experienced life, I'd like to think similar to yours. The reason why we as Zimbabweans have a very complicated relationship with race is because of how we grew up. So think about it. You were raised speaking English. At a very young age, you were sent to a predominantly white school that was run in a predominantly English way, with English values, with English behaviors instilled, instilled Mm -hmm. in you. And you probably never had an opportunity to explore or understand some of the things that were happening to you. The first reason is that our parents we're still dealing with trauma. Zimbabwe yeah. only gained independence like literal years before we were born. And our parents never went through a generation or a cycle where they didn't have to think about race. And mm-hmm. I don't know about your parents, but my parents, like they would talk about how bad things were, but just like joking, like just saying, oh, ha, ha, you know, I can't believe we used to actually accept this, but not actually addressing and confronting what essentially was trauma. Mm-hmm. And I think because we were born in that transitional period and we came of age in that transitional period, there is a lot of things that we were not allowed to feel. We were not allowed to feel you know, ungrateful for the opportunities that we had. And so we kept silent, but you understood that you were in a place of privilege and that it could all go away. And there was this feeling that you need to fit in. You need to fit into the mold of that post-colonial, you know, English style person who doesn't talk about their feelings and doesn't address these things and accepts things that are very obviously wrong um, as a way of life. And so I don't think you need to be hard on yourself because I feel like it is going to take us a lifetime and a generation to process some of the things that we saw and some of the experiences that we have. We were never taught how to deal with racism. I don't think anybody ever gave us like a toolkit on how to deal with it. And even though we didn't necessarily see our parents experiencing Smith era racism, they still did experience microaggressions all the time. Yep. And 
sometimes outright racism. Before we move on, I just want to ask you two about how you and your partners have navigated conversations about race and what you have sort of agreed on when it comes to how you want to raise your children. Well, we've had some difficult conversations where we don't necessarily see eye to eye on a lot of things. My husband still does not fully understand the breadth of what my children our children are going to have to deal with he sees them as just being a a half of him and a half of me and that just being perfectly okay he doesn't see the the external forces that the kids are going to have to deal with like essentially um here's a perfect example people coming up to us and being like your family is beautiful i wish more families were were like yours kind of in an essence stating that because we are not what would be the nuclear white family that we are the that our children are the future of what's going to end race racism my husband says yeah of course it's beautiful that oh yeah he he proudly states to anybody that my wife is african and my kids are black or 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 mixed race depending on who he's talking with but we've had some serious conversations about him especially during the height of the black lives matter like media blitz and all the things going on on how when our kids are of age they are going to experience microaggressions that he's not going to fully understand and i've explained to him microaggressions that i have dealt with in my own career and day-to-day life that he does not necessarily believe are substantiated even though at the core of me i know when i can feel somebody Mm -hmm. is not comfortable with my blackness or who i am we've had to have a lot of lots of conversations about how he is going to deal with that when our daughter comes to him and Mm -hmm. says that somebody overtly called them uh, the n-word or if they run into another black person depending on the, their color of their skin that's saying that they are not black enough or they're too white those conversations have been very hard because he still does not understand all the i don't know exactly what to say it but um well there are just some experiences that he will never he, be able to relate to right exactly yeah so that has been a challenging thing in uh, conversations that we we've had for sure and there there's been certain times where I can't relate to him mm-hmm. or I'm not necessarily, I don't want to get him to come on to uh, come into my side of understanding, but for him to even just take a second and check his own privilege because he is white passing to understand that my experiences, our kids' experiences and his personal experiences are different. The kids are treated differently mm-hmm. when they are with him in certain yes. situations than they are with me. And he needs to understand that although he's never had that situation happen to him, like that that othering or anything like that, that those situations that I have been put in with the kids are valid. So that's something that we're still navigating um, mm-hmm. and working on in terms of like just finding a fine balance on how to communicate. What about you, Frangina? I'm so sorry, my dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's okay. I, I think I agree with a lot of um, what Angelina had expressed as far as her experience. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of contributing factors to my dynamic with my partner. One Mm -hmm. being we're almost 10 years apart, him being from the East Coast, me sort of being raised mostly in bigger cities, him performing smaller cities. When we first Mm -hmm. met, he was a conservative. (laughs) He even had a card. And then kind of moved into more 
liberal ideas and I'm finding that now the older he gets and the more sort of divisive things get, he's gravitating towards more conservative ideas. So it's been interesting in the last couple of years, some of the conversations we've had to have and sort of navigate and try to get to a place of understanding where we can agree on the core values that we want to instill in the children. They'll understand that it's a work in progress and there's probably going to be more hard conversations and we're still developing our skill sets to be able to navigate those conversations. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely not I, easy. <laughs> I'm curious um, what, what you're saying has just brought up this thing that is a recurring statement that people who are not in, as you say, uh, bicultural relationships will say, especially to black women, it's that black women who seek out these types of relationships or who are in these types of relationships are rejecting their blackness and are seeking out are trying to get proximity to whiteness by dating a non-black guy. And this conversation is so frustrating to me. It is something that comes from misogynoir. It's something that is, it's like such a, a tired talking point. And I, I just kind of want to get your observations on it. I know that Cookie and I have talked about this a lot, but people have this misconception that because you are not dating within your race, that you there's something with, within you that you hate. And, you know, obviously I don't think any of us feel that way, but I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on that. Um, I, I'd say that's a very valid thing. I actually watched uh, like a short YouTube clip on uh, for like Charlemagne the Great and John Boy Boyega. He's from like the Star Wars um, franchise. And he said, um, he kind of just checked Charlemagne to see, because you're so pro-black and you said all these things. Are you with a black woman is essentially what he asked. And of course, Charlemagne said, yes, he is. He's like, good, I just had to make sure because if you are talking about being pro-black and pro pro this, um, that you should be with a certain type is essentially what he was referring to. I am very comfortable in my own blackness. I know my mm -hmm. my background, I know who I am, I know what who I was raised by, I I respect my culture and I and I love myself fully in the skin that I am I'm in. I mm -hmm. don't think because I am with a white man that, that negates me being a strong, proud black woman, or that I hate a certain aspect of my, myself because my children will not look like me, or that I consciously chose a white man to make sure that yes. my children would have less attributes that are mine. To have that type of mindset, that just perpetuates the I, that, that colonial ideal and separatism caused by ra racism. And, um, and that was instilled within slavery and then decades and decades of decades of like classifications on what it, like the different types of, of black people um, yes. that are, that you should be like, whether you're like, there's a thing in the States where if you're African, black, black, you're not considered black, black American, black Americans are different. There's uh, mm -hmm. Afro-Caribbeans, there's uh, all these different, um, I guess, categories that we place upon ourselves and that used to differ differentiate ourselves um, from other mm -hmm. black people. We're just buying into that. That uh, Well, the that, rhetoric that, that divides us, 
And I think it's what is interesting about this conversation is that it is only directed towards Black women. I don't hear this conversation happening to other women of color who choose to be in relationships outside of their race. And I mean, I believe that there is a particular a particular accusation or line of questioning that Black women who are out who are in these relationships there's a difference in what they face, and it is the most frustrating thing in the world. I I don't think it happens much to other people. And the fact that there's an assumption that we are seeking these relationships out, when in actual fact, Black women find it, especially dark-skinned Black women, find it incredibly hard to be deemed attractive. I would add for me, in my experience, always sort of being the only Black girl in the class. Mm -hmm. I've had my own struggle in coming to terms with loving myself as a dark-skinned Black woman. So I've had those experiences of wanting my hair to be different, wishing I was lighter. And for me, it's been sort of what options have been available. So the few Black guys I did encounter didn't want to date me and made that very clear. So, you know, get in where you fit in, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, really, though, I think I haven't, I don't know. I know my friends that are listening are going to laugh at me when I say this, but it is true. Having a black man man be attracted to me or even remotely try to talk to me is very few and far between. And I've asked, like, is it anything I'm doing? Am I giving off some sort of vibe that dispels them or like what is going on? And I don't get it, but I'll get a lot more white guys try to talk to me than, and it could be that fetish thing, but the black guys are looking for a certain look. I suppose. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with this week's letter. And we are back, everybody. Um, It's time for this week's letter. So, Cookie, take it away. Hi, um, Hi, Mixed Motherhood Pod. I am a mother to a beautiful little girl who's half Zambian and half Canadian. She has just started talking and can already say mama and dada. The problem is she calls every white man she sees dada. For example, we will be in the grocery store and she'll say dada when she sees a white guy who even remotely resembles her dad. As you can imagine, this is so embarrassing. She doesn't do this with women or with black women or black people, sorry. Have you heard of this before and what would you suggest I do? P.S. My husband thinks it's hilarious. I do not. It is a little I think funny. <laughs> the thing is with this, it is a little funny. I think the thing is, um, I know my daughter, I think my middle daughter when she was younger, she would do that a little, uh, quite often. But then she'd almost like catch herself because she'd look at the guy and say, Dada, and then she'd, it's definitely not him though. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, no, not him. But like, it was just, and the guy would just laugh and just be like, haha. And it was just like, haha. And then we moved on. I think overthinking it she's overthinking it there's part of me that and i think i'm 70 to 80 percent there where i think she's overthinking it and um she should just make a joke of it and reinforce no that's not your daddy um you know and point to who the daddy is but i think um just based on the conversation that we had that maybe there is some her own personal trauma coming out yes, here. I, I yes. mean, I don't know. Um, I think that she probably thinks that 
it's going to develop into like her child. It's going to develop into something serious and her child won't be yeah. able to d- differentiate white people. But I, I, I'm not a child development expert. I should ask my mom because uh, she is. But I think this is common with, with all kids. So not just mm-hmm. um, kids from biracial families. But I want to hear from you two ladies. I think there's a lot of context to this that we don't have. I mean, how often is the child with mom versus with dad? Yeah. And yeah. I, I do agree with what Denise said, that she might be sort of overthinking it, and that might be reflective of her own experiences. So yeah. I do agree just sort of validating the child. And yes, I, I, that I can see why you think that looks like dad, but that's not dad. And then reinforcing who dad is. Yeah, my son has actually done that, um, too, at a birthday party where it's just me and the children, and he ran up to this this white male who was like same hair coloring about same height as his father and went dad and then look, took a closer look and was kind of taken aback um but at, at that I didn't personally feel like I needed to justify that situation you know uh didn't lend any um thought to it but I think like you've all had mentioned that it, it does have a lot to do with this um woman's personal trauma and maybe perhaps her perceptions or the stigmas that have been placed on black women, especially if they're alone with mm-hmm. um, children, whether yes. or not they, that they might be yes. a single parent or that they, um, that uh, their, their child is uh, not around their father for some reason. And then that internalization that it has something to do um, with, you know, the, the color of the mother or, um, or, um, their, their relationship with the father that might not be more than that stereotypical oh, like yeah. a lot of people baby daddies um, yep. mm-hmm. um, I think, yeah I think that, yeah maybe it does have must have a lot to play into so it's mm-hmm. got to do more with her than than act the actual situation because 100 percent when I was um, with my ex a lot of the time it was just me and the kids like he was always at work which is whatever but like it was just me and the kids so a lot of times mm-hmm. I did feel like yeah, these people probably think that I'm out here trying to find a man for my children because they keep calling everybody daddy. But in my mind, I was like, whatever. <laughs> they don't see him. And she was only a baby. They don't see him all the time. And so when they see somebody who looks like him in terms of skin color, mm-hmm. she's going to say that because she can't necessarily vocalize that looks like daddy. It's yes. daddy. Mm-hmm. Right. I think she should just laugh it off when it happens mm-hmm. and understand yeah. that. I mean, at the age where they're saying mama and dada, they can't be like more than a few months old. It's been a while since I've had a baby, but I believe <laughs> only a few months old to be saying this. So I don't think there's any cognitive damage that's happening here. It's just an observation. And I believe yeah. that it is common with all babies. Um mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think the fact that her partner finds it funny is maybe it hurts her feelings. But she's really yeah. I think maybe okay. just doesn't understand how she's pursued, per, how it's perceived for her. So she just needs to maybe communicate that to him and and explain to him like why she's uncomfortable with it. All right, so it's uh, we're gonna take a little break and we'll be back for the news. We are back. So today on the internet, there is a drama that uh, uh, involves Disney. So Disney released a teaser trailer for the upcoming live action 
Little Mermaid. Some viewers are upset, to put it mildly, that the titular character Ariel is being played by Halle ba Bailey um, instead of a white woman. Their argument is that Disney is erasing a character that many redheaded children have identified with for so long. Ladies, what are your thoughts? Do you think this is justified or not? Not justified. It's a fictional character. <laughs> and the assumption that red-haired kids identified it sort of suggests that only Caucasian children have red hair. And mm -hmm. I mean, personally, I watched it. I shared it with my daughter. We also watched the reactions of those little black girls watching the trailer. And I was so excited. I mean, I almost cried. I was like, wow. And nobody's going to take that away from me. So they can be mad. It's fictional. There are people on the internet who are arguing, well, what if we did that with Tiana or with Mulan? Well, those stories are based on their race. Their race plays a significant factor in the story. Tiana can't get her own shop because she's Black. Mulan is a Chinese woman who traditionally is not able to go to war, who saves China. Pocahontas is a First Nation Indigenous woman who, you know, tries to save her people. That racial part is part of the story. This is a story about a half fish, half human that, by the way, is found in every region in the world. We have mermaids in our culture. Um, so I don't think anybody can take position of the story and, and claim that you know we are erasing this redheaded character. And there's another redheaded character too, another princess. Uh, what's her name? Merida. Merida. Yeah, Merida. So, I mean, I don't know what that argument is like, but... Yeah, that whole thing of, about erasing her image or whatever, the original fairy tale by the, by the grip that was in the Grimm's um, Brothers fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen does not mention yeah. anything about race or the color of her hair or anything. Those are all features that Disney and the producers, the production team, the artists all came up with the idea to make the character redheaded. To say that they're somehow erasing the identity of a, a little mermaid is ridiculous because in an essence, there's no actual written factual or, or historical documents saying what this mermaid, this mythical creature should actually look like. There is no scientific argument to say that a mermaid cannot be black because they're in water. What about the different colors of whales, dolphins, fish? Are you going to tell me that all of them should be pale because they're in water? That does not make any sense whatsoever. Yeah, I think it's awesome that she's in uh, the person that was chosen for the for that uh, role to portray Ariel in the live action because um, it is breathing a new bit of fresh air into like an old story um, that's been. Um, like like you said, this this story and like the mythology of mermaids is widespread throughout the world. So there should not be one definition of what a mermaid should mm -hmm. look like. We also have to remember that a lot of the stuff that Disney was doing, this is from way back when Disney was predominantly white. When they made these characters, it wasn't a slight on, not in, maybe not intentionally, maybe intentionally, I don't know. But we have to also remember that they just were doing what they saw and what they were trying to put out there and they put it out there. I don't think it, it's as deep. I don't think it's as deep. And now 
it's kind of, there's so much divisiveness when it comes to anything, anything these days, anything. It doesn't matter whether it's race, whether it's sexuality, whether it's whatever. There's so much divisiveness in how things are being done now. To me, when my kids watch the stuff, maybe because again, I haven't necessarily said to them, look, look, there's a black character that represents you. Maybe that's a me issue that I haven't put this on them, but they watch things and just watch things. They don't necessarily go, oh, look, now I look like Tiana or there's somebody mm -hmm. who's representing me. I don't, it's deep because of what people are saying possibly and the things that are coming out and people are being offensive and being difficult about it. I think what is particularly egregious about it, this is that it is the parents who are perpetuating this narrative. So it is not the children, the, the ones that this is really for. It is the parents of these children. And I mean, this is a parenting podcast. So it's it's very interesting to see that there are parents who, like, this is the hill they're willing to die on. What are they teaching their children? Are they teaching their children that race is a construct, Ariel can be anybody, like anybody can identify with anybody regardless of skin color? Or are they teaching them that, you know, Disney is this leftist capitalist machine that is trying to erase redhead identity in the world today. So to me, that is what is crazy and egregious about this whole situation. When in actual fact, like little kids don't really care. Like I talked to my, my six-year-old and she was like, oh, cool. And then she moved on with her life. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was just going to comment. I'm, I recall, I can't remember what year, but the movie Angelina Jolie played a character, an actual living person who was, uh, 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 I think, an Afro-Cuban descent and a Oh, wild at, wild at Heart or something? Wild something? Uh, something like that. Something yeah. Heart. But there was barely a whisper of backlash about that, and that's based mm -hmm. off of a, a real live living person. And yet here we have a fictional character, and you have all of this backlash. Was there this much backlash when Brandy played Cinderella? I no. Remember. Yeah, I don't remember no, it being I don't that. Remember that. I think it's all about just spreading the magic of Disney and telling little girls and boys everywhere that it doesn't matter. Anybody can be this character. All right, everybody, we will be back. beckoning us back to reality. Um, Angelina and Frangina, it was so lovely chatting with you. We have to have you back because I'm sure there's a lot that we didn't get to say on air today. To our listeners, thank you so much for being with us again for another week. And you can catch us on any anywhere where you hear, uh, listen to your podcasts. Thanks, everybody. Thank Take care. The Mixed Motherhood Pod is written and produced by Nanae Belanger and Kudzai Chimanakire. All musical credits belong to Epidemic Sound. Follow us on all platforms at Mixed Motherhood Pod. See you next time.